You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James. And welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're talking with Todd Cashton, author, speaker, professor of psychology, and director of the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason University. We'll be talking with Todd about speaking up and the subtle art of disagreeing with your boss. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Todd Cashton. Hey, nice to be here. Todd, before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do? Well, for three decades, I've been running the Wellbeing Laboratory at George Mason University as a professor, and we study all the things you wish you were talking about at cocktail parties. The study of love, purpose and meaning in life, stress tolerance, psychological flexibility, resilience, and dissent and and constructive disagreements. All right. It's that constructive disagreement part we're going to focus on today. We're so happy that you're here. Uh, We titled this show The Minority Voice uh, because in our pre-show call, uh, you had mentioned something that really struck a chord with me about how important it is for those people in a minority position to really find their voice in the workplace. Um, Can you sort of, as we start out, share your thoughts with us on why that's so important? Well, it's probably good to start with defining minority because I think we often do a very narrow perspective of this. You're talking about newcomers. You're talking about people who are ends of one. There's no one like them in the organization. You're talking about people that are lacking power and status and numbers. And for these individuals, if you don't give them a voice, if there's not access to their unique versus shared information that they have, you basically lose a portal to creativity. You increase the probability that you're going to have um, biased information processing. And at the group level, you're talking about having less cohesiveness, less critical thinking, and less autonomy because you're creating factions. As long as you allow people who are minorities and groups to sit by themselves, to be ignored and to some degree silenced, The group is not itself a single entity. Let's focus in on that a little bit more. So that voice in the workplace, that minority voice, if you will, that sort of constantly brings forth a point of view that others might not want to hear or deal with that sort of the voice of reality or the unpopular view. What does research tell us about that particular voice? how it's perceived and its effectiveness or lack thereof in a workplace context. So if you're the individual who disagrees with the the unanimity of the group, where the group is like agreeing upon, 
there are two things that pop into your head. So this is being the messenger. One is you think to yourself, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to be socially persecuted. And there is plenty of research from the 60s onward showing 1960s that those people that speak against the group, you are reducing the efficiency of the group, the speed to making decisions. And people don't like that. And also people don't people like to be right. People like to feel like they're intelligent, they're competent and they're ethical. And if someone points out that there are flaws in their thinking, um, those people tend to be negatively evaluated rejected, ostracized, and are often the people that are not chosen for committees, teams, leadership positions. The other part that the that the messenger is thinking about is I'm not that smart of a person. There's other smart people here. And if it was something intelligent that I was thinking about, someone else would have already said this. So as long as people don't reveal what they're actually thinking, as long as people hide their actual thoughts on an issue, people tend to self-silence because they believe smart people are not talking about this, so I must be wrong. So that's from the messenger's perspective. And from the audience's perspective, um, there's the notion that if you don't speak, then you're agreeing with the group, which is a really strong idea that I really want us to kind of talk about in terms of really trying to diminish that that assumption. And the second part is, if you speak, are you contributing to the ease and the positivity of other people in the room? And a lot of people have problems when there's a reduction in positive emotions, a reduction in speed of thinking. And yet, we kind of all know in the workplace that unless there is real serious urgency, to get an idea out there. We want the best decision, not the fast decision. And there's plenty of domains in our lives outside of work to experience positivity, such as with our friends, family, and whatever pickleball or leisure activities we're doing outside of work. It's really interesting. So what, if I understand what you're saying is it's that impact on the positivity of the conversation that tends to give that negative renaissance within, the, within that group. Right. Because you're not the one you're not you're not the rah rah person. You're the one talking, you know, about, well, hey, what about this? And what about that of somebody's brilliant idea that they just brought to the group? Right. Yeah. In some ways, we could think of it this way. What's the problem? We put too much of a premium on cohesion and positivity and too little of a premium premium on what are the things that would lead us to make better decisions and if we focus on making better decisions, being more productive, being more creative, being more innovative, it is hard pressed not to find that one of the key mechanisms is having diverse thinkers, but those diverse thinkers are given a platform to actually speak. And they're not just given a platform to speak, but people are willing to elaborate and consider those ideas. And that's three parts. I want to talk about those three parts, but do you think that? A lot of that conflict comes from leaders who are unable to deal with contradictory, I want to say thoughts or opinions or, you know, you know what I'm saying? That idea yeah. that paradoxical to, thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the, the idea that everything has to fit together and, you know, like we, we, we use often we treat analogies as if they're representative of reality. So you hear about, you know, a jigsaw puzzle approach to a classroom or organizational climate where each person has separate information in order to make the picture, 
to figure out what the image is, you need to actually access and get the perspective of everyone who holds particular jigsaw pieces. Here's the problem with that analogy is that things don't fit nicely and perfectly. It's all probabilities. So we never know whether if you're doing a product launch, it's going to work or not. If we did, every movie would make $100 million in the first week. Every book would be a bestseller. Um, and every product that comes out of a technological firm in terms of an app would be in the black. And none of those things are true. So clearly, there are really smart people doing really good work, but it's not leading to something that's necessarily successful as an organization defines it. And so because of that, one of the places where leaders really get this wrong is managing their own psychology. And you know what hopefully we'll be talking about is what are the strategies that you can do to make a group smarter and wiser? It's not going to be sufficient just to say that we care about diversity and bring in diverse people. Yeah, I think that's a misnomer. I mean, I think that's such a misperception, uh, right? Because focusing on that is not really, there's so much more to it than that. I think that's an integral part of things, making sure that you do have diverse voices at the table, but it's not the end all be all, right? It might not even be a good starting place if you don't set up cultural, delimitate in the culture is that the re reason that we're bringing you in as a diverse person is because of X, Y, and Z, because you have a different perspective. We tend to be homogenous in our thinking. This is what we're not doing well at. And when you clarify, it's not because of the category or box that we're bringing you in, but it's because of you will infiltrate the stream of ideas and decision-making and improve it. And we're not even there yet in terms of describing, we're describing like diversity as an end in itself. And I would argue the best, the better way to even sell diversity to at the hiring level, the HR level, as well as at the group level in terms of functioning well, is to say, we bring these people in because they make us smarter and wiser. And that's why we're not just bringing them to the table. We are going to create conditions where we extract those unique perspectives and ideas and that's not something you hear too often. No, it's not. No, the focus tends to be on just the basics. Let's make sure that our workforce looks diverse. But I like the idea of focusing on that our workforce sounds diverse in its ideas and its thoughts and its speech and uh, actions and those sorts of things. All right, let's take, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, more from Todd on finding your voice in the workplace. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Take a step toward bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us, like us, give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking with Todd Cashton about speaking up and the subtle art of disagreeing with your boss. Um, I want to go back to a couple of things that we talked about. And I, in this sort of context, you, you mentioned there were three elements and there were some strategies and I want to get to that. But let's talk about in the context of how that voice, that minority voice, uh, that goes against the majority being heard. How can you do that 
and be heard without sort of committing career suicide every time you voice an opinion or open your mouth. Because, you know, as you said, that that voice tends to be viewed in a negative light uh, with some negative consequences. So um, how about some um, practicalities of all that? Yeah, let me give at least three. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them that we know. And, and there's a lot of science behind all of this. I mean, one of them that's really important is before you have a group meeting, you want to figure out ahead of time, who do you think are going to be your greatest adversaries on the topic or on the task? And one really effective strategy is talking to those people individually so they don't have to worry about impression management or self-presentation. They don't have to worry about their social status. It's one-on-one. You're having lunch. You're in their office. And you're saying, the reason that I'm talking to you is because your critiques, your ideas are always incisive and and it grabs people's attention. I have a feeling that you're going to disagree with me on this topic. I would like to talk about to you to improve the quality of my ideas by hearing your criticisms ahead of time. Now, here's why that strategy is effective. One, there's a little bit of subservience in there. And I know that has a bad ring to it, but it's the idea of Another way of looking at it is you are showing gratitude and appreciation for the strengths that this person has. Two, you are collaborating with them ahead of time. Now, that is treated as a positive scenario for that person. You are acknowledging like good things about them. Third is that when you go back to the group, you can now refer back by name to that person is that, you know what? This issue matters so much to me that I wanted to get critical feedback ahead of time. So I went to who I thought would be the best person with the best critical feedback. And I want to thank them because these ideas I'm sharing are partially influenced by them. By saying that now, you have disarmed them a little bit, brought down the defensiveness in the room, and you really have what's called the novelty premium. Is that people are going to listen to you because they're saying, whoa, this is weird. This is like a cool movie teaser. You talk to Julie, like Julie is like, nobody talks to Julie one-on-one that happens there. And so now you get not just a platform, but people really want to think and elaborate on your ideas because it's Teresa and Julie, and we've never seen that combination before that happens. So you're, you're really taking advantage of triggering curiosity and holding it. So your message is actually heard. I love that. It's a great way to think about it. So another strategy that you can engage in is what I call the discomfort caveat. It is difficult to go against the grain and conventional thinking or whatever is the group is leaning towards. One thing you want to do is you want to say ahead of time is this is difficult for you because you care so much about the group and that's why you're speaking up. This is when, with this discomfort caveat, you are not going to be humble. You are going to reveal the behavioral evidence of what's made you a good group member. So don't assume that they remember. Remind them, listen, when this person was out in the hospital, you were the one that actually took on their workload um, because the group's important to you and you know how valuable a player they are. And you can talk about year after year how you're involved in changes in hiring practices, promotion practices, focusing on diversity, all those committees that were kind of, as we might call, unpaid labor, this is when you bring it up and say, I do it because I care about the health and longevity of the group. Lead with that so that people actually have in their head before you speak about the topic is that, oh yeah, that's right. Like Teresa and Todd, like 
They care about this group. They've always been there. I forgot about it because we're all self-absorbed. Mm-hmm. So don't assume that people will remember all the things you've done. All of those things that you've done have bought what's called idiosyncrasy credits. Is that all those idiosyncratic activities that you have done that's unlike any other person in your organization, put them together. And now you bought, you have a, a pile of currency that you can spend on being a little bit deviant and a little bit different from the group. Without that currency, people are going to fold up more likely to fold their arms and be a little bit cynical slash skeptical. So let me ask you about that. How do you go about that without looking like you're bragging by carrying on about this litany of wonderful things you've done and all these, you know, great things. And how do you, how do you get that in without again, any, any negativity or negative context associated with what you're doing? Like, Oh God, here goes Teresa again, right? We know you've been on this committee for 10 years. We know you've got all this experience. So how do you avoid that? Yeah. So the key is meta comments. You're making a meta comment and being very clear, explicit about your intent. I'm going to remind you that how much I care about this group. And I apologize that this comes off as being non-humble, but I just want to say, I do this, this, and this. The reason you tell them, the reason that I'm telling you this is because I think we're going in the wrong direction. And I want to remind you, I care about this group. This is, this is for the group. Now, there's an add-on strategy that you can do as well, which is show that you have skin in this game, that any way that your idea or your message goes against your best interests, you want to clarify that this is a a little bit of a self-sacrifice. So let's just say for argument's sake that you're talking about reducing the amount of resources in a department because there is a because you wanna focus more on things that are future oriented. Maybe it's AI or technology. That's not something that you are part of, that you realize that this is something that we need to invest in because it's going to help us in the long term. I myself am going to be affected by this. This takes away resources that were of, are and were available to my department and my job. But I'm saying this, that let's consider the possibility that we're missing the boat as AI becomes more and more important in our field right now. Self-sacrifice and showing that you have skin in the game. And this is not about just raising your salary and raising your status. Mm -hmm. Okay. And your third, you had a third point, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, I've I've got dozens, but... (laughs) But a third one that's really important, you have to ask yourself, what is the, the psychological piece that makes it most likely that someone can listen to what you're saying and afterwards reflect and contemplate what you're saying? Simply, it's ease. And another word, another term of it in the psychology field is fluency. Like, it's really easy to understand. You're not using jargon. You're talking, you're just talking like a regular person at an Irish pub here we are at St. Patrick's Day and you're having a conversation and you're just focusing on the really specific concrete details. The more that it's simple to understand, the more that people can then quickly offer their criticisms, you can honor those criticisms and then say, either say, would you like me to address them now? Or I can talk to you after this group conversation now. And when you can have this soft, gentle response. You're going to respond to everybody. And you're going to, and you're going to ask, you're sort of asking the group, 
Do you want to spend time on it now? Or is this something you want to talk about later? But when it's easy, easy to talk to you, it's easy to understand. It's easy to understand that there's always a trade-off, what the costs are versus the benefits. Then you don't have people, you're basically anticipating what will be the difficulties of the audience ahead of time. I love it. I love it. I think those are really practical. I love the practical aspects of it. I love those things. And I think that that voice, I've always valued that voice in the workspace, that voice of responsibility. It always seems to me, um, you get in meetings and people are talking about, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And everybody's fired up. And then you have that one person who goes, well, have you thought about this? And what about that? And then everybody just, you can just see people deflate the air out of the room. Right. Yeah. And well, yeah, I was, yeah, Teresa, I was going to say this is that when we talk about this right now, you probably, most people who are listening don't have an image of a person doing this. It's because none of us have been taught, none of us have been taught how to argue well. None of us have been taught how to argue well with, with a teacher in grade school. None of us have been taught how to right. argue well as, um, you know, when you're in your, you know, your initial employment at a company and you're going through these trainings, what if you disagree with the trainings? None of us have been taught how to do that. And then once we... Once you get this Peter Pan syndrome, as you move from really effective employee to leader, no one said, when you go to this position, I want to teach you the secrets of how to keep a group functional and make sure all the intel, all the cool information is still getting to you. No one, no one's getting that conversation from someone um, or it's really rare. And what I want to do, you know, with my work is kind of make this normative is that this is exactly built into the infrastructure of every group, sports teams, PTA meetings, you know, Silicon Valley organizations, firehouses, everywhere is leaders when they first become one did not, you know, genetically learn how to lead effectively. Right, right. Well, Todd, I thank you so much for joining us today. We have said, I told you it was a short show and there's so many other things I'd love to talk to you about. Maybe we'll have to have you back so we can delve into this a little bit more, but I want to thank you for joining me and for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with our listeners. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love the questions you ask me. It's scintillating. Awesome. You can learn more about Todd by visiting his website at www.toddcashton.com. That's T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N.com. You can also connect with Todd via our website at workplaceperspective.com. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Name at Night, and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar. Wow.